0: This is Guns and Butter.
1: There's
2: so I don't think it, it takes someone with a PhD or an MD in psychiatry to understand some of this stuff. Uh, when you, if you have the misfortune of having one of these traits, then that's probably treatable and you're not too bad off. But when you combine all this, all these terms, all these adjectives that I'm going to be talking about here, into a single person, when you're a narcissist to begin with, and a sociopath, and you're a demented, mendacious, psychotic personality, and you have bipolar disorder, well, then you've you got problems.
0: I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Philip F. Nelson. Today's show, the pivotal role of LBJ in JFK's murder. Philip Nelson is the author of LBJ, The Mastermind of the JFK Assassination. Nelson's interest in the darker character traits of Lyndon Johnson began well before John F. Kennedy's assassination intrigued by articles about Johnson, which had appeared in a number of news magazines in the period of Johnson's vice presidency, and numerous additional scandals that subsequently appeared in newspapers for nearly three years after that, TFX, Billy Sol Estes, Bobby Baker. These intriguing stories about Johnson continued after JFK's assassination, with other articles including Life magazine's how LBJ's family amassed its fortune. According to Nelson, the premise of the book and the term mastermind is that there had to have been one key person who was the single most important catalyst behind the JFK assassination, who would have provided the critical mass required to bring all other elements together and hold them together throughout the planning and execution of the 1963 coup d'etat. That person would have necessarily been someone who had the power to assure the others that they would succeed and be protected from discovery and prosecution afterwards. He would have to be someone who recruited and marshaled all the others and he would have to have had influence across the federal government bureaucracy, as well as the Texas state and local judicial and law enforcement agencies. Lyndon Johnson was uniquely positioned to fulfill all of these requirements and be able to provide the unifying, driving force required to pull off the crime of the 20th century. Philip Nelson spoke on the pivotal role of LBJ in JFK's murder at the 50th John Fitzgerald Kennedy Commemoration in Santa Barbara, California on November 22, 2013. This one-day event was hosted by the Oswald Innocence Campaign and featured cutting-edge research on the death of our 35th president, Philip Nelson.
2: Who was LBJ? We'll start with that. This presentation is about how the most evil, I believe, uh, manipulative man in the country at that time, in 1963, was able to not only move himself into the Oval Office after years of planning, and my contention is that didn't start just in 1961 with a new ticket. He was well into his plan by that point. It started earlier, and arguably it started back in the 40s. He knew that in 1948, he had to to succeed in that uh, election to become a senator from Texas in order to be in the position then to elevate himself into the presidency from there. That was the springboard. He he was focused. He was obsessed with becoming president. Uh, In order to understand what happened, you have to understand first how evil Johnson was. And I'm not making this up. This is all stuff that is readily available in numerous other books. the problem is some of those books are kind of rare and um, old. Some of them go back to the 60s. Uh, But, you know, I have uh, compiled this evidence that uh, I'm going to be reviewing based upon these other books, other sources. And the documentation is there. And it's in more than one source. You have to understand that there are many sources that combined... Uh, provide the clues that we're going to be examining here. Anyway, it's about how the most manipulative man suckered the most malleable man, one of the most malleable men, into becoming a patsy. And unfortunately for him, he didn't realize that until it was too late. And you've all seen the video footage of how he came to that realization uh, when he shouted as he was being escorted from one place to another that, I'm just a patsy. And he had then realized what had happened to him. So I'm not going to go too much into Oswald. I'm I'm going to go back and just focus on Lyndon Johnson and his role. As I said, he had a lifelong obsession to become the president of the United States. And I think it all started when he was a child, when he was uh, about 12 years old, according to Robert Caro. Uh, And Caro did a magnificent job in that first book of his, The Path to Power that was published in 1982, and then he published three others since then, and in each case, they became less and less objective and critical, and more and more until this last one, The Passage of Power, the fourth book, there's one more coming. He says the tone is going to change, I'm not sure what that means, because if it changes any further, then he will have elevated Lyndon Johnson into probably you know what he is going to try to pass off as a great, great man, just as he's being presented by many people, including people like Bill Moyers, that we're going to be uh, looking, looking at a little more closely as we go along here. But it was no accident that he did not actively campaign for that 1960 nomination even though he knew he had to make his move that year, because in 1958, he turned 50 years old. And he knew that from his family's history that his time was limited. That as his grandfather and his father died in their mid-60s, like 65. And yet, so so in 1958, Johnson had friends in the Texas legislature uh, change the law in Texas, to allow him to run for a national office at the same time that he was re-running for the Senate, for the Texas Senate, because his term was up. So he wanted to run in both races, and he won in both, uh, but he didn't want to possibly risk the one to achieve the other, so he was kind of doubling down his bets there. Um, Yet after doing that, he didn't campaign. He didn't bother campaigning, With the help of J. Edgar Hoover, they were neighbors for 19 years. They lived up in northwest Washington. At the time, it was considered a pretty fancy area, but driving by there today, they seem like average-looking houses, a little larger than most, but uh, not that spectacular. Until he he moved in 1961, upon becoming vice president, he he left that area, and he, he moved into the house that had formerly been occupied by Pearl Mesa. Who was um, I believe she was a uh, opera singer, but she had a lot of parties in uh, in that house, and he thought it would complement his new position, so he and his wife moved there, and that was a much larger house it was considered to be a mansion and After he did that, while he was living over in the previous house, some of his neighbors included Fred Black and Irving Davidson, two the most uh, prominent lobbyists at that time, men who had actually later, they were both convicted of different crimes, of um, the uh, financial variety. And when he moved, they moved with him. At least Bobby Baker did, and so did Fred Black. So so they lived on either side of him in his new house. Okay, so in his aggressive campaign to become the vice president, in other words, he, he didn't campaign for the presidency in 1960, so in 1960, he didn't campaign for the presidency until five days before the convention started. He went to Los Angeles. He put his hat in the ring, and he immediately started criticizing Jack Kennedy and Joe Kennedy and saying, or you had John Connolly say it, that uh, JFK had had a fatal disease and that he would not last and that he should not really be nominated. He was trying to to get the nomination from JFK, even though JFK had it pretty much wrapped up by then. All he did was put a message out to Kennedy that he was going to have the fight of his life if he didn't nominate Lyndon to become vice president. In other words, that was just one of the tools that he was using so that he would be put on notice that he was in it for keeps. And that message was uh, received loud and clear. Here they are campaigning somewhere. I think it's a classic picture, one of those <laughs> worth a thousand words. Okay, so what did other people say about Lyndon Johnson? So Harry Blackstone Jr., the son of a magician known as the Great Blackstone, he said that, that he learned more about the art of deception from Lyndon Johnson than he, he learned even from his own father, the magician. LBJ was a man who understood the art of misdirection, of making the eye watch A when the dirty work was going on at B. We're just going to cut through a few uh, things that other people had said about Johnson. And this is from Robert Caro's first book. Johnson's hunger for power was in its most naked form for power not to improve the lives of others, but to manipulate and dominate them, to bend them to his will. It was a hunger so fierce and consuming that no consideration of morality or ethics, no cost to himself or to anyone else could stand before it. Now, this is a hint of when Carroll was actually reporting, and he was trying to establish himself at this point as a critical and you know, objective biographer who was not going to sugarcoat his subject, like, for instance, Doris Kearns Goodwin did. Doris Kearns Goodwin, when she wrote the, f- the first major Authorized biography. There were others, for instance, Harry Province, a friend of his who owned a newspaper down in Waco, uh, who wrote probably the most obsequious book about Johnson of all. But but um, I think he was trumped by what Doris Kearns, at the time before she became Goodwin, uh, did because it's pretty much acknowledged even by her. That she got very, very close to Lennon, sleeping down there, staying with him at the ranch, paddling around the pool. She even admitted that to Don Imus on Imus in the Morning a couple of years ago. And uh, he was trying to corner her into saying, you know, what else you know, were you doing when you're not paddling around the pool? Anyway, here's uh, what Bobby Kennedy had said about Johnson once he was mean, bitter, vicious, and animal in many ways. I think he's got this other side to him that makes his relationships with other human beings very difficult unless you want to kiss his behind all the time. And this picture here, you may have seen it, but uh, this is an incident that happened. The White House photographer, this is when Cecil Stoughton was still in that position. This might have been his last day in that position because Johnson didn't appreciate the fact that he had taken this picture. And it's amazing that it survived. But it did, and this is it and this is showing Bobby Kennedy kind of hitting his fist into that pillar there and and accusing Johnson of murdering his his brother it was It was the first time I ever saw LBJ lose control like that, and you can see he 's a little shocked by it that That picture came out of madeleine brown 's uh, book This is the only place i 've ever seen it. And Bobby said that Johnson very rarely helped when he could help. When we were trying to get votes in the Senate, he was against sending civil rights legislation up. Now, isn't that interesting? That Bobby Kennedy said that about Lyndon Johnson, the guy now known and revered throughout the land by other historians who give him all the credit for that, even though at the time Johnson said that he was doing it in the name of JFK, that he was going to continue, we shall continue, That's what he said continue his legacy. But, but he knew that he would, he would get the credit for it because it passed under his watch.
0: You're listening to author and researcher Philip Nelson. Today's show, the pivotal role of LBJ in JFK's murder. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter.
2: Jackie Kennedy. And this is taken out of the book that was just published, uh, I think, uh, two years ago. Jack would say you could never get an opinion out of London at any cabinet or national security meeting. Lyndon, as vice president, just didn't do anything. Well, that's uh, very incisive as well. In other words, Johnson did not cooperate with JFK whatsoever, and he was battling him almost as much as he was battling Bobby during that time. Well, I, I think for the record, they erred in assuming Johnson was ever a real partner with JFK acting as a team player, that that wasn't the case. In fact, Johnson fought him on practically every initiative he tried to get through Congress. Because when he blackmailed him, when he he threatened him back in Los Angeles in in 1960 to name him the vice presidential candidate over and above all the other people who were on JFK's long list... In other words, Johnson was not on that long list. He certainly wasn't on the short list. As a matter of fact, according to Clark Clifford, there's no question that that uh, JFK had extended the, the nomination to Stuart Symington the night after he secured the nomination for himself to be president. But later that night, late that night or early, early in the morning, the following morning, JFK got another call, this one from Johnson himself, and or... Sam Rayburn, because both of them went to see JFK right after that, and this is all compiled from a number of other books, and yes, one of those books was by Seymour Hersh, and there are certain people who don't want to use Seymour Hirsch for that, and they, they go to the extreme of accusing him, you know, of being a CIA stooge. Can you believe that? A guy who exposed the My Lai Massacre, but he has a pretty incredible record for not being a CIA stooge. But that's, that's what some people would have you believe. So although uh, he portrayed himself publicly as being JFK's right-hand man, behind the scenes, and this goes back to Evelyn Lincoln again in, in her two books on the subject, on the relationship between Johnson and, and uh, Kennedy, he was fighting them on practically everything they tried to do, he sided with the military chiefs on Berlin, Cuba, and Vietnam, Laos. So he was he was against practically everything that he tried to do, Kennedy tried to do, always cautioning him, especially about civil rights. The timing is not right. We don't have the votes. You've got to wait until the time is right. That was his advice consistently all that time. As a result, when, when uh, Kennedy... Had one of his aides, Burke Marshall, create the, or draft that law. Johnson was not involved. He was not involved in writing the 1963 Civil Rights Law. Now you can say, "Yeah, but he passed the one in 1957." Aren't you going to give him credit for that? Well, the answer would be no, because that was a meaningless. That was it was an empty gesture. There was no enforcement powers. That was all stripped out. Everything about it was stripped out so that you had conservatives actually being for it, Southern segregationist conservatives being for it, and you had practically every liberal uh against it, even though he tried to he tried to engineer it so that they would be supportive of it, none of them. Uh Joe Rao, the uh the chairman of ADA, Americans for Democratic Action, said it was it was toothless. It was worthless. It was worse than nothing, and so so did uh, most of the labor leaders at that time. He was even against selling surplus wheat to the Soviet Union at a time when they had a drought. Their crop was decimated. Their people were starving, and they didn't have enough wheat to, to supply uh, the bakeries to make the bread and so forth. And in our case, here here it was in October of 1963 that this was all being discussed. And, And the silos in the Midwest were full of wheat from the previous year. And it was time to start harvesting, and they were in the middle of harvesting and processing wheat from that year. So we had a huge surplus of wheat. But the vice president, according to what he told, what JFK told Arthur Schlesinger the vice president thinks that this is the worst foreign policy mistake we have made in this administration. Farmers in Iowa didn't think that. In fact, they were all for it. And most, most Americans were, except, you know, the, the fringe on the right who, uh, who thought that that was just, would be um, awful to actually help the Soviet Union feed their troops because maybe we should make them starve. Anyway, the question that all this begets is, was he really against these things or was he simply trying to save them for his own legacy? When he, when he said, for instance, the timing is not right. We don't have the votes for the 1963 Civil Rights Act. So Kennedy went around him. Even though he was the chairman of the EEO, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, Johnson was the chairman of that. Can you imagine that today? Obama having having Joe Biden chair uh, you know, an agency like that or a committee and, and uh, not even invite him to participate in the creation of this legislation, it's kind of unbelievable. It's unbelievable that that isn't well-known among people. That's, that's what I find so incomprehensible and that people give him so much credit for having that passed. Well, if if he had so much uh, muscle to get it passed afterwards, within just days he he started backing it and pushing it and pushing it. Yet the record is that even Republican senators overwhelmingly supported that legislation. You didn't have to twist their arms. Everett Dirksen was right there to help him get it pushed. But he couldn't get Al Gore Sr. to vote for it. He couldn't get William Fulbright, the esteemed senator from... Arkansas to vote, vote for it, and there were others. Robert Byrd voted against it. They all did. So, you know, all of this gets lost in the dustbin. And, and so the, the fact of the matter is more Republicans as a percentage in the Senate supported that legislation than his own party and the Southern Democrats at the time. Okay. A Johnson aide. This is another quote from Robert Caro's first book. Lyndon Johnson believed in nothing, nothing but his own ambition. In his book, these words were italicized. Everything he did, everything that was italicized was for his ambition. The same person, Anonymous, said that he had a side to him. He could get very low, and when he got real quiet, it was bad, sometimes very bad. And this is an aspect of Johnson that needs to be understood, because if we're going to understand you know, just who he was and, and what he was, then you have to start with this. This is where you start. The character traits that he had. Because unless you understand that, you'll never understand how evil he was. Now, I, I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a psychologist. There are probably some amongst you who are. Well, I know that Peter Janney is. So there he is back there. <laughs> so all of this is layman's terms. Okay, I don't delve into this. But I had two courses in psychology, 101 and 102. So I don't think it, it takes someone with a PhD or an MD in psychiatry to understand some of this stuff. Uh, when you, if you have the misfortune of having one of these traits, then that's probably treatable and you're not too bad off. But when you combine all this, all these terms, all these adjectives that I'm going to be talking about here, into a single person, when you're a narcissist to begin with, and a sociopath, and you're a demented, mendacious, psychotic personality, and you have bipolar disorder, yes. well, then you've you got problems. So, so here's a fellow that, that uh, wrote the following, Gerald Tolshan. He is a Ph.D. psychology professor. He said that Johnson was a tragic figure, pursued by demons, real and imagined, It appears likely that Lyndon Johnson suffered from bipolar, what was then called manic depressive disorder, throughout his life, a condition that grew worse as he grew older, peaking just as he reached the zenith of his influence and power. Dr. Bertram S. Brown, he was a psychiatrist that treated a number of presidents. In other words, he was was an employee of the federal government. Said that Johnson's humiliation of his employees, you know, he 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 would make it a point, to to make his staff his senior level staff uh, accompany him when he went to the bathroom to take notes do dictation whatever and and make them you know come into the bathroom and some of them tried to do it from the outside it didn't work out too well anyway this this humiliation of an employee of his employees was a way of exercising his power over them he was a megalomaniac according to dr brown He was a man of such narcissism that he thought he could do anything. Hmm. That's interesting when you consider that some of his best friends were similarly um, jaded. Okay, here's another person who was a psychologist. Wrote a book called The Mental Collapse of Lyndon B. Johnson. The United States was being led by a man who already was or rapidly was becoming psychotic. LBJ's grandiosity, his megalomania... And paranoia reached dimensions that could no longer pass for normalcy. Signs of grandiosity and paranoia were present before he became president. But his manic furies and incapacitating depressions, his pathological ego, megalomania, and paranoia were products of his manic depression. So I'm I'm trying to get this out there so that, you know, when I start saying these things about him, it's not something I just made up out of old cloth. It's something that professionals have said. I'm simply citing them. George Reedy, one of his top-level staff, said, said this. During his agonizing, depressed days, he spent holed up in bed, days at a time, three or four, five, six days at a time. He just sat, he just drank, and spent a lot of time simply looking up at his bedroom ceiling and lashing out at anyone entering the room. Well, you know, you have to understand what was going on there. And he was referring to 1965, for instance. I don't think it was confined to any period of time. It, it came and went.
0: You're listening to author and researcher Philip Nelson. Today's show, the pivotal role of LBJ in JFK's murder. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter.
2: And here, here's Bill Moyers now. Consider that Bill Moyers later, this is, in other words, after Johnson uh, died in 1973, and in the late 70s, early 80s, Bill Moyers uh, got to be buddies with um, this fellow, um, Joseph Campbell, who wrote several books on the power of mythology. In fact, that was the title of a book that somehow he wrote with Moyers, In other words, he had the main authorship, and then Bill Moyers was also an author. And um, somehow that was done four years after Campbell died. Go figure. But before that, during the time when he was still alive, they did shows together, and it was all about the power of mythology and how you create myths and perpetuate them. And I just think it factors in here somewhere because of the myths that we all got to see in Dallas this morning and, you know, uh, who was the, the historian? David McCullough seems to think, you know, that it was all cut and dried. It was, it was Lee Harvey Oswald. And, you know, that's what we're stuck with. But Bill Moyers back in 1965 said and that he would just go within himself, just disappear, morose, self-pitying, angry, while lying in bed with the covers pulled over his head. The president said that he felt he was in a Louisiana swamp, just getting sucked under. Arthur Schlesinger, talking to Bill Moyers, said, we talked about the problem of anybody ever writing about Johnson. Bill said, as he said to me before, and Dick Goodwin has said even more often, that one great trouble was that no one would believe it. He said that he could not see how one could write about Johnson the private monster and Johnson the public statesman and construct a credible narrative. Okay, he said that uh, he's a sick man. At one point, he and Dick Goodwin became so concerned that they decided to read up on mental illness. Dick read up on paranoia and Bill on the manic-depressive cycle. Comparing what President Truman had once said about his being tested by the Russians, quote, and this is again from Schlesinger, Bill thinks this sense of being tested played a considerable part in Johnson's reactions to Vietnam. What happened, Bill said, was an atrocious marriage of ego and nationhood, so that Johnson saw himself as America involved in some sort of challenge to his manhood. And that played out in a press conference down at the Johnson Ranch in 1965, just as the build-up to Vietnam was going on. And he was confronted by one of the reporters there who who asked him, why why are we doing this on the other side of the world? And and they alluded to the fact it was a civil war and it was on the other side of the world. Why are we doing that? And so he unzipped his fly and um, pulled out his penis and said, this is why, exclamation points, this is why, And it relates right back to this quote from Bill Moyers. It's interesting now that Bill Moyers, the same guy that I got the term colossus from for my next book, because Bill Moyers used that term in a review he wrote for the Mark Updegrove book uh, about Johnson, another one of those obsequious books about how great Johnson was, with nary a word in there, uh, or very few words that were... At all critical about him, even though they must have known. They, all these people know what what a um, demented maniac he was, but you don't see it portrayed that way. Here's Richard Goodwin, the other guy. Now, this Richard Goodwin wrote a fantastic book in 1988 called "Remembering America," and it's a big, thick book, it's probably 550 six hundred pages, and he he spent an entire chapter. Of something like 23 pages, describing what really went on in the Johnson White House. And it's very amazing. He was criticized heavily at the time by Jack Valenti, of course, Bill Moyers, others, who, who wanted to portray this book as being, and what he said, as a way to sell more copies of his book. But they didn't question the truth of it. They were talking about his motives, that's all. And, and so, you know, what, what, what does that mean? Anyway, Richard Goodwin, among other things, said that we were describing a textbook case of paranoid disintegration, the eruption of long suppressed irrationalities. Robert F. Kennedy, this is 1967. This is when he was considering running himself in 1968. Uh, and this is what he said. Um, how can we possibly survive five more years of Lyndon Johnson? How can we possibly survive five more years of Lyndon Johnson, five more years of a crazy man? And for a long time, he put off that decision, put it off and put it off, and he, and he, he, was, being, he was being encouraged by people like Richard Goodwin to do it because there were, there were many people there who realized that a White House was being run by a madman and and so when push came to shove, finally Bobby Kennedy entered the race. In the middle of March, I think it was March 15th of 1968, he finally decided to, to go for it. This was right after the New Hampshire primary, and Eugene McCarthy was given credit for winning. He didn't technically win, but he, he, he showed up such a massive um, amount of votes that he, he, he got much more than anybody ever expected he would. And Wisconsin was coming up. And I was involved. I was a McCarthy kid because I was for Eugene McCarthy. I I thought he was just a a great guy. And and so it was said that there was not one house in Wisconsin that hadn't been reached by the, the McCarthy kids, and I was among them. Bobby Kennedy, if the American people knew the truth about Dallas, there would be blood in the streets. J. Edgar Hoover said pretty much the same thing. If I told you what I really know, it would be very dangerous to this country. Our whole political system could be disrupted. Well, what he really knew is that what happened, because he was part of it. And he told this to the son of one of the oil millionaires, Billy Byers, uh, down down in Texas. I put that in there because of the remarkable um, similarity. Probably the only thing they ever said that was in agreement or near agreement. JFK said, Lyndon was a chronic liar. He has been making all sorts of assurances to me for years and has lived up to none of them. Lyndon Johnson, on another occasion, he said, Lyndon Johnson is Incapable of telling the truth. RFK Johnson lies all the time. I'm telling you, he just lies continuously about everything in every conversation I have with him. He lies, as I've said, he lies even when he doesn't have to lie. All this goes to the character again of of Lyndon Johnson and and the fact that it's not understood, it's not reported. Here's a sample of some of his lies, just general lies that everybody sort of knew. And, and, and they came to accept them, even though in uh, 1965 also the, um, what is the Sigma Chi Organization of Journalists uh, coined a new term called credibility gap, just, just for our president, credibility gap, because practically they came to the realization that you really can't expect him to say anything that might be truthful. So he said, uh, among other things, his great-grandfather was killed at the Alamo. But this is like one of those where he kept repeating them. Even when he was called on it, and even when he finally had to acknowledge it, he, he kept continuing the same lie. And he, he did this all the time. And, and you'll see, if we get through this thing, that other people uh, had said the, the same thing, that this was just something, a chronic condition of his. Okay, Johnson City was named after his grandfather. Well, that was just BS, and all of his major biographers, Robert Dalek, Robert Caro, and others, have have said that that was not true. Yet he kept saying it. He kept saying it, the same kind of deal. And so his his uh, aides, George Reedy, for for example, and um, Horace Busby, were repeating it even years, decades after he died. They they were saying the same thing. And then, and in fact, Busby said once. He says I I don't understand some some of the people uh, who uh, who worked with him didn't realize that he was aristocracy too that his his father his grandfather was a leading pillar of uh, of Johnson City and they named the town after him and here's a guy who who worked for him for a couple of decades and he never figured out that that was just a you know BS and and uh, you know, that's troubling, isn't it? He he should have known that, yet he even put it in his oral history uh, document at the LBJ Library that that, that that was the case. Okay, he lied about Lady Bird, owning and running the broadcasting business, and everybody said that that wasn't the case. She she was a- active, but she wasn't, she didn't have the influence that Johnson did, and and Johnson somehow, this is, Pretty amazing when you think about it, because we have one arm of the federal government, the FCC, Federal Communications Commission, empowered to to um, regulate broadcasters, television, radio, and so forth. And, and he somehow got them to uh, refuse any license uh, changes for the previous owner of that radio station down in, in uh, Austin until they were practically they 're begging for bankruptcy, and so he 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 came in at that moment and bought the all the assets of that little radio station that was almost bankrupted and going out of business and he turned it around and suddenly the FCC just gave him every time he applied for something within weeks, he had the approval over and over, so he expanded that base, he expanded the power of the broadcast he expanded the the uh, counties and the the people who uh, we're able to tune into that radio station, and suddenly it just t- turned from an unprofitable situation to very, very big profitability. And and um, and, and yet he he always claimed that was Lady Bird's business. It, w- it was him and his influence that got all that done. He he said that koch Stevenson had tried to steal the 1948 Senate election, and everybody knows. I mean. You, Robert Dalek again, Robert Kerr, they all have studied this, and, and all I have done was cite their work. And, and they've proven conclusively that that was not the case. It was Johnson. And it wasn't just those, that last 201 votes. It was thousands of votes, if you add them all up. But then no one really knows, do they? Because those records were almost immediately destroyed, even before, even before the case was settled in court. It, it was uh, there were fires, uh, lost votes, and so forth.
0: You're listening to author and researcher Philip Nelson. Today's show: the pivotal role of LBJ in JFK's murder. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter.
2: So after all that, LBJ lies about the Dallas ambush. Here's some lies about what happened in Dallas, that it was uh, JFK who wanted to come to Texas. Yeah, he even had Conley write a report or, or an article in the um, Life magazine or Saturday Evening Post, one or the other, uh, four or five years later on the anniversary to say that that was the case. But if, if you look closely, you can find a, a recording, an audio vision or videotape of um, Senator Smathers Florida, where he he said, uh, and this is in the, the JFK Library in, in Boston, that that was not the case at all. That he he didn't want to go to Dallas, but he had to because he had committed to you know to London to make an appearance there. Um, he he said that Kenny O'Donnell told him to take Air Force One to Washington. Kenny O'Donnell said that was absolutely not true, didn't happen, and he didn't know that they were going to be in Air Force One. When they got back, that is, he and and Jackie um, with the body of JFK in, in the casket, uh, had they known that, they would have taken Air Force Two. That's what Kenny O'Donnell said. And he said after Bobby Kennedy, after he, I believe he had Bobby Kennedy taken out, uh, that Bobby Kennedy wanted Dulles and McCloy on the Warren Commission. That's Those are the last people that Bobby would have wanted on there. Okay, here's the alt photo. And um, you'll be seeing this. I mean, you've seen it before. And um, and you can see Lee Harvey Oswald. I mean, this is seconds after the, the shot that hit... Um, hit JFK from the front, the one that went through the windshield that mysteriously disappeared, uh, and, and hit him in his throat. And he's like this. If you go in close on this, you can actually see him going like this, reacting to that shot. Uh, but let's go close. This is the version that was given to the Warren Commission. You see it's cropped, so it only shows the presidential limousine and a portion of the Cadillac follow-up car, and then right above there, uh, you can see uh, Lee Harvey Oswald, we believe now. And so that's um, telling. But what that doesn't show is Lyndon's car. So let's go back and look at Lyndon's car. There it is there. A close up, and we'll zero in a little bit more on it, and you can see that you have Ralph Yarborough on the right side there, which would have been the left side of the car, and then you have Lady Bird, and in between is the driver of the car, and over there where the circle is, that's where LBJ should have been, but he's not there. LBJ is MIA. And the reason is, according to witnesses at the scene, Who's, who stated that, including a motorcycle policeman who stated that Lyndon Johnson ducked down before they even got to the intersection he was he was already down there, he had been pretending all during the motorcade to to uh, to be listening to the a m radio broadcast of the motorcade itself and oblivious to all the people who were out there you know trying to greet all these people and, and some witnesses even referred to that that car there as being Yarborough's car. Why did they do that? Because they didn't see London, because he was already ducked down. And so all during the motorcade, now, and, and this is, a, if you go back and look at William Manchester's book, his demeanor during that entire period was um, expressed with terms like dour and, yeah, he was pouting and he, he was, he was worried is what he was because he knew what was coming down and he was, Hoping, I I guess, you know, knowing what the plans were, well, he had a lot of worries to think about. And, uh, okay, let's look at some juxtapositions of facts. Lyndon Johnson took over the planning of that Dallas motorcade. His men were involved in all the planning. Secret Service, Dallas PD, Cliff Carter, this fellow Jack Puderbaugh, uh, were basically given the the uh, instructions to do everything that Lyndon Johnson had had told them to do to prepare for that. And that, in, that included the route itself, the one that uh, jogged through um, Dealey Plaza, because up until then there was a lot of confusion because it looked like they were going to go right through on Main Street and keep up there at 30 or 40 mile an hour speed uh, and go out to Industrial Boulevard and then take a right. And it, it was actually arguably closer that way. Than, than the way they did, and and so at the very last minute, at Love Field, instructions were given up and down to to everybody in the motorcade, all the drivers, that we're going to go, we're going to turn right on Houston and then left on Elm Street and put put them uh, right into the center of the kill zone, and all of that came, I believe, from Lyndon Johnson, and I explain it in, in considerable detail in the book. If you have not read that. Um, and then he took charge immediately to commandeer Air Force One. And that, that wasn't just some reaction that he had. He had planned that for weeks. In fact, he took off weeks before that, a month before that. And he, he spent most of that time at his ranch in touch with a lot of people, a lot of Dallas policemen and Secret Service people and so forth. By the way, I, I, on the way out here, I was reading Vince uh, Palomero's book. I highly recommend it if you haven't read his book. He goes into even more detail about all of that in, in a couple of different chapters. And so um, I think it's very well worth it. I, I'm going to have to um, stop now, and I apologize. We're going to be talking a little bit, hopefully, about the next book, the sequel, which is going to be from Johnson's presidency, from, that is from November of 1963, on through the end of his presen- presidency and then his life. And we're going to be looking at some of the um, other treasons. In other words, it started with this. I mean, this was just the culmination of a series of murders, which we're going to be talking about. And then, after the first somewhere between a dozen and 17, the number varies depending upon the source, uh, murders that he commissioned in order to, to eliminate people who got in his way during his lifetime... Then, of course, there was JFK. It was murdered 50 years ago today. And after that, well, I'm going to save the rest because that book is not published yet. It will be published approximately a year from now, unless I can get the publisher to move it up a little bit. So just stay tuned on that one. But the uh, combination of those two books then will lead us to the complete history and the sordid history of Lyndon Johnson, but um, so I didn't get to, to go into the second book. Uh, in that second book, I, I'll just very quickly say that the first chapter of that second book, when it comes out, would have been in this book, in the first book, had the information been available at that time, but it was not. Because this U.S. Marshal, Clint Peoples, who was on Johnson's case for 30, over 30 years, he knew all about those first murders. I'm sorry I didn't to get to discuss the murders because there were – he was aware of those, the murder in 1951 of Doug Kincer. And he knew from talking to the policemen who investigated that that Johnson's hand was kind of there the whole time, that he was always a suspect, but they never had enough evidence on him to do anything with it. He was, he was onto the case in 1962 when they were looking at the Henry Marshall murder, the uh, agriculture uh, representative uh, that worked right there in Central Texas or Waco, Texas, uh, who, who turned up dead, shot in his side right here within a four-inch circle. He was shot five times. Three of them would have been fatal, the other, other two inca- incapacitating, according to the coroner, there was no way that that was a suicide. And he said so in, in the, uh, the grand jury. But it didn't stick because the jury was, was stacked. He had Barefoot Sanders, his appointee as a U.S. attorney, down there monitoring everything that that grand jury looked at. And this information was, was all in Clint Peoples' oral history. That was not released until last year. In 2012, and as I said, that's the reason it wasn't in the first book, but it'll be the first chapter in the new book, and it will put the, the finishing touch on, on that issue, and um, with that, I have to stop. I'm sorry about that. I will take a question or two, maybe, just a question or two. Yes, sir. Uh, you were
0: talking about the, office, the vice presidential offer to of Symington, and you didn't finish that little thread. Of, of how he
2: flipped? Oh, yeah, he had to go back and retract it. Is that what you're referring yeah, to? Yeah, yeah he, uh, af- after, after uh, Johnson and Rayburn convinced him that he had to put Johnson on his ticket or he'd ha- he would, there would be no end to the, to the uh, problems, he even said that. I'd, I've been convinced that if I don't do this, they will give me problems. I don't need any more problems. So he flipped it around, gave it to Johnson, and that's what we were left with. But that was all according to a plan that Johnson had meticulously developed over years. N- none of the, what happened in that period and in the aftermath of the JFK assassination, it was all by design. It was, none of this was uh, spontaneous. It was part of the, the, um, the program that I was trying to get to, I was going to address that and why I chose the term mastermind. And whether you want to call it pivotal player, mastermind, or my other term is called driving force. Because it's all the same thing. It, and it doesn't, I, I don't mean to suggest at all that all of these other parties, You know, certainly the, the uh, Secret Service and the FBI and military intelligence, Navy and Army, uh, you know, other, you know, the, all the other uh, usual suspects, yes, they were involved, but there was one thing that was the common glue that brought them all together, and that was Lyndon Johnson. You can call him what you want. I like driving force now, but I also will defend mastermind, the use of that term. Yes, sir. Well, yes, I, I think that Barr McClellan wrote, wrote a great book, uh, except that it covered a very small portion of this. In other words, it, it did not acknowledge the, the presence of these, these other parties. Uh, it was all as though it was just a Texas-based conspiracy period of big oil and so forth. Uh, and, the, you know, just Texas interests. And that, that, was, that was far from it. That was far from the truth. Yes, sir. Bobby Kennedy? I, I think he knew. I okay, I'll, I'll repeat the question. When did Bobby Kennedy get this figured out? I, I think that he knew almost instinctively, because after all, you have to consider that he he was the one who was giving leaking all the evidence to Life magazine, to 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 the Justice Department, and so forth. He he knew even before.
1: Please join me in thanking yeah. Phil Nelson for a wonderful presentation. <laughs>
0: been listening to Philip F. Nelson. Today's show has been the pivotal role of LBJ in JFK's murder. Philip Nelson is the author of LBJ, The Mastermind of the JFK Assassination. Another book, a sequel of sorts, will be published in 2014 titled LBJ, From Mastermind to the Colossus. The new book will validate and vindicate with new evidence many of the assertions made in the first book. Furthermore, it will reveal even more of Johnson's treasonous actions as president. Visit Philip Nelson's website at www.lbjmastermind.com That's lbjmastermind.com. He can be contacted by email at philfnelson at hotmail.com that's p h i l f n e l s o n dot c o m. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. To leave comments or order copies of shows, email us at b l Faulkner at yahoo dot com. That's b l f a u l k n e r at yahoo dot com, or Faulkner at butter dot org. Visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.org. Hey,
1: hey. Hey, yo, these are some serious times that we live in, G, and our new world order is about to begin, you know what I'm saying? Now, the question is are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you see sniper trying to steal your life you know what i'm saying look what's inside yourself